everybody. Welcome back to Two Strike Noise, your weekly baseball podcast, baseball history podcast, we should say. And, and speaking of history, I want to first of all welcome uh, back my co-host, Mark. Mark, it's great to, to be here again with you this week. Yeah, it's uh, always a pleasure, as I always seem to say. It, you do. And, you know, this week, uh, before we dive into this, I just wanted to run something past you, get your thoughts on something. Uh, this okay. week, uh, I thought maybe it would be timely, you know, with the folding of the AFF this week, that maybe we turn our attention instead to the Italian Federation of American Football. I wanted to know, you know, do you think the Milano Seamen will be able to defend their title? The, you know, the, the Laszlo uh, Ducks look really strong this year. And with Jeff, the, Jeff, yeah. Jeff, hold on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of the Laszlo Ducks. I'm with you, but we really should stick to baseball. I'm oh. saying it's a baseball podcast. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'll do Let's it. just do something baseballish off the top of your head. All right. If anybody's interested in maybe co-hosting a podcast on the uh, Italian Federation of American Football, uh, drop me a line. I'm always open. But no, I think you might get a call. I, I might. We're big. We're big in Bologna. I I've gotten a lot of email from there. <laughs> Okay. Um, hey, I wanted to mention, uh, a lot of people mentioned the sound quality of uh, last week's show. Um, it was just kind of a screw up. I talked with uh, and worked with uh, Moogie Klingman, who was our uh, sound guy. Yep, Moogie. And uh, Moogie has assured me that things are going to be better this week. It wasn't his fault. It was just kind of something weird that happened. So Moogie, uh, appreciate you getting things uh, set up better. Moogie. Yeah, always. He he is a wizard with the with the knobs and dials. He does a great job of best I've ever seen editing, setting up this the studio. The studio is looks fabulous today. Yeah, you know, he even cleans it, which is amazing to me. <laughs> I think he missed this area where I'm sitting, but beyond that, yes, I'm sure the rest is beautiful. Uh, I was going to say I, I wanted to bring up uh, a little bit of uh, I don't know if it's a correction, but I want to explain banned our discussion that we had last week about baseball in Japan really quick. Yeah. We, we mentioned Randy Bass and, you know, the, the, the great seasons he had in Japan, uh, his being walked by a team managed by Sadaharo O oh as he attempted to break Sadaharo O's oh uh, single season Japan home run record. Did you know that Randy Bass is a sitting Democratic Senate member of the Oklahoma State Senate. You know, I, I read that, but uh, I I never mentioned it for some reason. I thought that was pretty cool. I was I was tweeting this week, you know, about our show last week and did some more research on Randy Bass and I thought that was pretty cool. I did I did not expect it that his the picture showed up and I thought this was just somebody that kind of looked like him and I had just clicked on the wrong link. But nope, there he is. He is a sitting senator in the uh, Oklahoma State Senate. Pretty cool. He's had uh, a very interesting life. If anybody knows Randy, uh, send him our way. It'd be a great interview. Uh, Mark, are you by any chance familiar with uh, the Major League Baseball rule 3.03? Probably. Probably. Just to refresh your memory, it states that a player or players may be substituted during a game at any time when the ball is dead. Now, it seems pretty obvious that you got to have a dead ball before you can have a, a substitution, right? Right. Well, that was not always the case. I, I found a, I found an article this week about uh, some baseball rules that have changed. 
And this rule was specifically brought up because of Michael Joseph King Kelly, which I think King Kelly, a lot of baseball fans have heard of. He's a catcher outfielder in the late 19th century. He's actually on my short list of uh, people to talk about. Oh, this is a great. And he's. Can I just tell you guys that he has got one of the best mustaches in the history of the game. It, it is epic. It is it is great. What happened that that made this obvious, you know, rule have to be actually written down? Uh, Kelly was not in a game one one day in in 1891, and uh, somebody from the other team, I I couldn't find out what who they were playing. King Kelly is probably best known for being on on the Boston team. They were not the Red Sox at that point. I think they were the Americans. But somebody hit a, a high foul ball towards the dugout. And Kelly was sitting in the dugout. And he was also a player manager at this point. So Kelly grabs his mitt and jumps out and yells out, Kelly, now catching. And then he caught the ball. <laughs> <laughs> So oh, that's fantastic. So he insisted that, hey, nothing against the rules. There's nothing that states this substitution couldn't be made at any time. Well, the umpire would not allow it. He called the batter out, and that rule was instituted quite quickly after King Kelly tried to, to pull a fast one. I thought that was rather interesting. They're always thinking. These guys are always thinking. I wonder if he caught it with his mustache, because I, I just can't get over the mustache. That's great. Well, it's a great mustache. You know, one of the first rules established uh, on the Cartwright rules was no player can catch a ball in his cap. But it doesn't say anything about a mustache. Now, yeah, yeah. If you catch a ball in your cap, it's a triple, isn't it? I think so. It, oddly enough, a catcher's balk is, is uh, two bases as well. So wow. if you're on first base and a catcher box, you get to go to three. Now, I, am, I, I, have, I think I've heard of a catcher box, but I have no idea how one would commit a catcher box. The the one I'm familiar with, and I, I was watching a Dodgers game, and Mike Sosha was catching, and there was a, a pitch that he blocked, and it rolled away from him, and he had his catcher's mask in his hand, and he reached out and scooped it up, scooped up the ball with his catcher's mask, and the umpire went, boom, that's a catcher's balk, and sent the runner to third. Uh, I knew that was illegal. I did not know that was considered a balk, let alone be two bases. That's, that's harsh. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Yeah. I've only seen it once. Well, uh, speaking of things that have only been been seen once in the history of baseball, how about an unassisted triple play from a center fielder? Yeah, I haven't seen that. Well, I, it happened in 1911 in uh, the Pacific Coast League, so I wouldn't have expected you to see it. But what, what happened is uh, Vernon Tigers center fielder Walter Carlisle, he is the uh, perpetrator of this one-off event. He was one of the fastest players in the league. He had a very uh, unique method of catching a ball and then throwing it to the infield. He would dive for the ball and then do a somersault and pop up and throw it back to the, to the infield. Some people do that, you know, if, if they're in a hurry now, but it sounds like this was kind of his thing. You know, like Ricky yeah, Henderson right. would do a snatch catch. Yeah. I think some people did it on accident. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he did it on purpose a lot. So uh, this happened in a July 19th game between the Vernon Tigers and the Los Angeles Angels. Now, this is the Pacific Coast League, uh, Los Angeles Angels. Score was tied 3-3. Base runners for the Angel, Angels on first and second. Nobody out. 
Tiger's manager, Happy Hogan, which he was a grumpy guy by all accounts. Uh, really? I just make it up. Oh, what? See, we're so big on nicknames on this show. Well, I, you know, I, I got another one. He brought in a reliever to replace the starting pitcher, Alex Soldier Carson. I don't Soldier? Soldier, maybe. That's nice. He just did what he was told. That's it. So uh, the Angels batter, Roy Aiken, he had a, lot, a low line drive just beyond the reach of the infielders. So the runners took off thinking, all right, that's this is going to be a single we're going to we're going to get running but carlisle had positioned himself very shallow right behind second base and got a good jump on the ball and at the last minute he does his dive snags the ball right before it goes in the ground does a double a double somersault is reported so this is super circus catch so neither of the base runners realized that he had made the catch i don't even think they knew he was there he pops up back to his feet, sees that the lead base runner is already rounded third and is headed home. So he just jogs in and touches second base for the second out and then realizes that the first runner had already passed second base and was on his way to third. So he just calmly jogs over to first base, steps on the bag, and completes the only unassisted triple play by an outfielder in the history of professional baseball. That is outstanding and it makes me uh, want to look for something like that to happen again even though it won't yeah it also seems a little bit like he was showboating because he probably could have tossed the ball to first if the runner was already like almost a third but uh no he wanted that unassisted triple play yeah showboating showboating was a thing back then you do it now you're going to end up with a fastball in your ear (laughs) but uh back then showboating was a thing it was fun so there you have it that 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 wraps up our BP version, uh, BP portion of the show. There you go. <laughs> so uh, who's uh, who's going first today? You want to go first? I'm going to talk about uh, Andrew Bishop Rube Foster. Everybody called him Rube. That was his nickname. He uh, he got the nickname by actually defeating Rube Waddell mm. in a barnstorming game. So it was quite the accomplishment, and he became Rube Foster. Um, he was an African-American born in uh, Calvert, Texas in 1879. And uh, he, he, in uh, 1897, he started playing for a team called the Fort Worth Yellow Jackets. They were an independent black baseball team. And uh, he uh, was quite talented. He was a pitcher, and he could throw uh, amazing pitches. He could throw what they called a fadeaway pitch, which was actually a screwball. And the, this was his out pitch. He was incredibly dominant in uh, as a player. He eventually, he really wanted to play in the big leagues, and he knew he wasn't allowed. So he decided to form his own league. As one will do. As generally happens. Um, so he was a successful player. Then he became a successful owner because he owned uh, one of the teams. And the Chicago American Giants. He also managed that team and played. And, and what what position did he play? He was a pitcher. Ah. He was. Uh, I mean, talk about a Renaissance man, right? He's a he's a player, owner, founder, manager. Not too many of those were around. No. In fact, uh, many refer to him as one of the greatest baseball minds of all time. And I have to say, after doing my research, I, I have to agree. The guy was something else. Uh, let's see. I'll tell you a little bit about 
Um, the first decade of the African-American leagues or the Negro leagues, as they're called, um, he was really the most dominant pitcher there was. And that would be in the uh, first decade of the 1900s. And uh, he was very successful. His team, the Chicago American Giants, were very successful. He was uh, he was looked upon as one of the founders of um, Negro League Baseball and getting people to notice and see what talented ball players they had out there. Because something interesting, uh, John McGraw was a big fan. Uh, manager John McGraw from the New York Giants was a big fan of Rube Foster. And he, he once said he would get $50,000 if Rube Foster could pitch for his team. Of course, that wasn't going to happen. Um, uh, much to John McGraw's chagrin. Ha, I used the word chagrin. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, that was awesome. So what he did, what John McGraw did was he brought in Rube Foster to teach Christy Mathewson how to throw the screwball. Oh, wow. And it became Christy Mathewson's outpitch. We all know Christy Mathewson, one of the greatest players, one of the greatest pitchers of all time, completely dominant. And his outpitch was taught to him by a Negro League player, the one and only Andrew Rube Foster. So I thought that was pretty cool. And I, I always heard that John McGraw was kind of a, uh, a jerk, but he obviously didn't have any problem with uh, race of uh, players because he wanted Rube to pitch on his team. And when he couldn't, he hired him to, to be sort of a coach. Hmm. There's a, there's a quote I found from uh, 1907 and it was by a guy named Frederick North Shorey for the newspaper, the Indianapolis free man. There used to be some odd named newspapers. <laughs> Everything's the tribune and the times now, but the free man. Anyway, this quote was, uh, I'll read it to you. Rube Foster is the pitcher of the Leland Giants, and he has all the speed of an Amos Rusi, the tricks of a Haas Radborn, and the heady coolness and deliberation of a Cy Young. What does that make him? Why, the greatest baseball pitcher in the country. That's what the best ball players of white persuasion that have gone up against him say. So there you have it. Dominant as a pitcher and you know, the white players that faced him in barnstorming games and stuff uh, were quite likely to say, yeah, I don't want to face him anymore. <laughs> some some stats, uh, stats were not kept um, really meticulously in the Negro Leagues, but we do have some numbers. In uh, the 1905 season, Rube uh, was 51-4 and four as far as pitching. Yeah, he won 51 games. I lost four, though. I mean – a guy like that, you got to hope for him to go 55 and 0, but you know. <laughs> well, that means he also had, appeared in at least 55 games. Well, he, yeah, in fact, um, one of the worlds in, in the Black World series, he uh, pitched four of the five wins <laughs> that the winning team had. Yeah, he, he was kind of a bounce back rubber arm guy, too. So not only was he 51 and 4 in the 1905 season, he was known. Let me ask you this if a, if a pitcher these days wins three or four straight games, you're looking at him, you know, like, wow, he's on a roll. He's tearing yeah. it up. You win more than that. You are like baseball God. Well, this guy once won 44 straight ball games. That that's almost as long as Joe DiMaggio's hit streak. Yeah. 44 straight games without a loss. Now, if that didn't make you want to sign him, you had to be out of your mind. I think uh, I would have said, I told people, look, set all your preconceived notions aside. This guy can play ball. He can help our team. But it didn't happen, unfortunately. Not not yet. 
Um, so he uh, he enjoyed barnstorming and so on, but he really wanted to play in a league. So he decided to form his own league. He organized the Negro National League, and this was the first long-lasting professional league for African-American ballplayers. And it lasted from 1920 to 1931. He... Uh, because of all this work on the Negro National League, he is often referred to as the father of black baseball or the father of the Negro Leagues uh, he, because he founded the Negro National League, the most successful of, of the Negro Leagues. There were, there were a lot of them, and there were a lot of barnstorming teams. And so there was places for African-Americans to play, but never on the level, the same level as white players in their league. Unfortunately, now the the thing was that at this point, African Americans, the businesses of African Americans were thriving. Um, they were uh, people were building, putting up their own businesses and and investing and so on. And uh, a lot of African Americans became very successful. And uh, of course, that made the Negro National League a little more successful in every category. And of course, when that happened. People said, oh, they're making money off of this. And so a bunch of white guys led, uh, led by a guy named Nat Strong. I couldn't find a whole lot about Nat Strong other than he actually worked for Albert Spaulding at one point. So he was a baseball guy. But there was money to be made. And so these uh, white businessmen decided instead of integrating our leagues, we're going to form our own African-American league. And we're going to call it the Eastern Colored League. And what they did was... <laughs> They offered more money and stole players from uh, Rube Foster's league. And uh, so there was kind of an animosity between the leagues. Uh, some, of the, some of the better players were uh, lured with uh, large salaries and promises and so on. Um, and Rube wasn't real happy about it. But, uh, you know, competition just makes each other sharper. So he continued to lead the... Uh, Negro National League, and it was still the, the most popular of the Negro Leagues. Did they ever play each other? Did the two leagues ever meet? Yeah, actually, that's a good question. Um, they did not like each other, but they formed sort of an uneasy truce. And in 1924, the champion of the Eastern Colored League played the champion of the Negro National League. And this was known as the Colored World Series. And uh, it took place every year from 24 through 27. Uh, in 1927, the uh, Negro National League was thriving, and the Eastern Colored League, not so much. And they actually went out of business. They were struggling in 26, and then they went out. Uh, they disappeared in 1927. So Rube's uh, League was the, the dominant African-American league in the country. And his league lasted, actually, to 1931. But a lot of financial constraints, and we were heading into the country was heading into a, a difficult financial era, so people weren't going to ball games. And of course, the the most affected by uh, a downturn in the economy are the poorest citizens, and so that did not help. So it's uh, the the Negro National League struggled and eventually folded in 1931. Uh, there was only one African-American league remaining after that, and it was called the Negro Southern League, which I found very interesting and might have to do a little more research. I found a book about it, and I might have to buy that and then let you guys know all about the Negro Southern League because it's rarely talked about and apparently had some amazing players. 
this this renaissance man this rube foster this guy that pitched so amazingly well went out formed a team then formed an entire league uh sadly foster experienced a mental breakdown in 1926 and he could not manage or play or be a, a league official anymore he spent his final years actually in an asylum in kankakee illinois and he died in the asylum on December 9th, 1930, at the age of 51. So it was too early for him to go. No one really knows what happened, but as as would happen, or as happens with a lot of real genius, brilliant minds, um, sometimes they just snap. Uh, he was, you know, incredibly bright, incredibly creative, and it, unfortunately, he uh, suffered this mental breakdown, and we uh, we lost Drew Foster far too early. But there is, there is some good news. In 1981, Rube Foster was elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame. So you can, when you go to the Hall of Fame, when you go to Cooperstown, Rube Foster's there. Look him up. Remember, he is the father of black baseball. And he is one person that can be uh, named as uh, taking, taking baseball forward and uh, eventually ending up with Jackie Robinson. Uh, it wouldn't have happened without the Negro Leagues for Jackie to play in in the first place. So, Rube Foster, not a guy that gets talked about a lot, which is why I'm talking about him now. Big time baseball renaissance man and one of the greatest baseball minds of all time. All right, so I found I found a great quote as well about uh, Rube Foster, and this comes from author Robert Peterson, and he says. If the talents of Christy Matthewson, John McGraw, Ban Johnson, and Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis were combined in a single body, and that body were enveloped in a black skin, the result would have been named Andrew Rube Foster. I think that's, that's a, brilliant. It's a great summation of, of it. Really is. Well, uh, for my story this week, I am going to go from uh, in, instead of doing a person or a game or a series. I'm going to I'm going to actually talk about an inanimate object. Right on. I am going to talk about Fenway Park. Ah, uh, yes. Now, Fenway, have you been to have you been to Fenway? I have. I was fortunate enough to attend uh, a game at Fenway a few years back. Yeah, I I've been to Fenway. I think I've probably been I've probably been to about 20 or 30 games at Fenway. Um, including a couple of World Series clinching games, which was really cool. To, to be there but and actually that was my first the first ballpark major league ballpark i ever got to set foot on when i was down on the field was fenway oh nice nice and i remember i because i remember the first time i set foot there i was like you know this is a ballpark where babe ruth is played here ted williams is set foot on this same you know this same ground all the the yankee greats the red sox greats um Shoeless Joe Jackson, all those guys that played on that ground, I remember. And then, of course, Greg Perkle, Mariners. Oh, yeah, right? Perkle power. <laughs> but that was, you know, Fenway is a, you know, despite how you feel about the Red Sox or Red Sox fans, as a, as a baseball fan, I think everybody holds Fenway Park in a certain high regard. And so I wanted to, I wanted to do a little bit of research and, and find out about the park because it is you know, along with Wrigley Field, it is, well, Fenway is the oldest park still in operation. 
So let me let me tell you a little bit about Fenway Park. So the Boston franchise, which did not actually become known as the Red Sox until 1908, they had uh, before Fenway played at a park called Huntington Avenue Grounds, which actually was less than a mile away from the current location of Fenway. Team played there for 11 seasons before Fenway Park was constructed. Now, this is incredible to me. Fenway Park was constructed in six months at a cost. What? Six months. Yeah, I mean, now it's two years. Easily. Once you have plans for a ballpark, it's two years. The cost at the time was $650,000. So I looked it up, used a inflation calculator. That today equals $16,930,000 in today's money. So nowhere near what real what we're paying now. No, I, I do you know what the Rangers new ballpark that's under construction, the current estimate is for that park? I have no idea. 1.1 billion with a <laughs> B dollars. Wow. I mean, <laughs> this park even if it, it in the day would have cost 16 million dollars, it's still in use today. It would have long since outlived its, you know, it's expense. It's it's incredible. Yeah. That's an excellent point. So the stadium was financed by General Charles Taylor and his son John, who just happened to be owners of the team at that point. They already owned the land on which the park was built, and the Fenway neighborhood had already been somewhat built up before construction had started. And that is why, like a lot of parks from that time, the odd shape of Fenway because they just kind of squeezed it into wherever they could. And it, it truly is an odd shape. I mean, there's, I think it borders five different streets. It's, it's not a, a city block as you would generally think of it. No, it is uh, it is a geometric wonder. <laughs> so in today's world, every stadium, you know, has a corporate name. Sometimes even the field within the stadium is called something different. Well, not so then. It was actually never named. They never named the park. But somebody eventually asked John Taylor, the son and, and owner of the team, what the stadium was called. And he replied, well, it's in Fenway, isn't it? Call it Fenway Park. Huh. This is really interesting. The, the architects who designed and built the stadium was Osborne Engineering of Cleveland. So this... Uh, architect and, and designer also later went on to do the same for the original Yankee Stadium. Hmm. Now get this. They also designed, I'm not sure that they built, but they designed Jacobs Field, which is now Progressive Field in Cleveland that opened in 1994. So that's that's incredible. Almost, you know, almost 80 years later, they're still doing the same thing. Oh, wow. So the design and thought that went into the, into the park uh, was really way ahead of its time. I mentioned it was built in only six months, but they did a ridiculously good job. It was the first ballpark of the era that was not built out of wood. It was made of steel and concrete. And a big problem with ballparks at the time was the fact that they were often all wood and they were often located where they could, you know, like I said, just be fit in, which oftentimes meant precarious spots and industrial spots where things tended to catch on fire easily. And, you know, being all wood and I think the fire departments at that time were, were bucket brigades, essentially. 
you know, if something caught on fire, it was going to, it was going to go up to smoke, which led a lot of parks to be burned to the ground a lot of time. Yeah. We didn't have the best fire safety rules back then. No, not, not a lot of regulations. Yeah. Not, not a lot. Um, I do want to give a shout out here to a Twitter account that I follow that I think a lot of people would enjoy if, if you don't already, it's at MLB cathedrals. And this account just shares a ton of pictures of historical stadiums, some newer ones as well. Some really great, great stuff uh, on this account. And one thing that I saw there recently uh, on the, on this feed was a aerial shot of the polo grounds and Yankee stadium. And I just never realized, I mean, they are literally within a mile or two of each other. They could see each other. It, It was so close. It was incredible. That's awesome. So uh, when Fenway opened, there was no second deck as we now, you know, come to expect from ballparks. But especially, you know, when you think of Fenway, you, you, you know, of the second deck, there was uh, not even a green monster in left field as we know it. But construction, like I said, was so good that its original foundation was good enough for all of these expansions, the press box, the second level, the, the deck out in right field, all of this stuff. It all took place on top of the original foundation with minimal updating because it was built so well. So, you know, that's probably one of the main reasons why Fenway is still able to be used today is because of how ridiculously well built it was in that six month construction period. That's amazing. So back to Fenway, it's 1912. Three other stadiums actually opened this year as well. And get this. So the same year as Fenway, Ebbets Field opened. Tiger Stadium, which was originally known as Navin Field, was opened. And Crosley Field, which was originally called Redland Field, was opened. So Ebbets, of course, housed the Brooklyn Dodgers. That was torn down in 1960. The final game at Tiger Stadium was in 1999, and that stadium was finally torn down completely in 2009. And Crosley Field, which was the home to the Cincinnati Reds, was torn down in 1972. So all of those other, you know, parks, especially these three well-known parks that opened at the same time are, are now gone, gone for quite some wow, time. Yeah. So Fenway's uh, grand opening was in 1912, should have been a big moment for the town, but believe it or not, another, another event not only kept just the city's attention, but the entire country's attention and kind of shifted it away from baseball. And that was the sinking of the Titanic, oh. which happened five days before opening day in 1912. Ah, I gotcha. Wow. Add upon that, that the team's home opener was postponed three times due to rain. Oh, wow. So eventually they got a game in. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a question here. So I, I meant, I mentioned that the green monster was not, it wasn't, the green monster at this point. It was a large wall in left field. It had ads all over it. Who do you think was the first player to hit a home run over the left field wall in Fenway Park? Well, although it would have been opposite field for him, I'm going to guess Babe Ruth. That is a very good guess. Congratulations. <laughs> I did something High right. High fives all around. I got to tell my wife. <laughs> I'm sure she'll be very impressed. Yeah. All right, so let's jump ahead to 1934. So 1934 is the first big renovation at the stadium. So if you go there today, there are a bunch of small blue wooden seats that are still used. That's when these were first installed. 1934, they're still in use today. Uh, There was something called uh, Duff's Cliff 
Now, this was a 10-foot incline that was at the base of the wall in left field. It was named after the left fielder, Duffy Lewis. And what this incline would do is when they would have a, a, a game that had a lot of people there attending, is they would actually seat people on this little hill right beneath what is now the Green Monster. And it was auxiliary seating. But, you know, when they weren't people out there, it was in play. And uh, Duff Lewis was famous for being able to run up this hill and catch fly balls before they hit off the wall. Thus, they named it Duffy's Cliff. Duffy's Cliff. That's awesome. So that was finally removed in 1934. Um, this is also when the large manual scoreboard was installed in the wall. 13,000 new seats were added and the dimensions were altered. So they made the park a little bit smaller. Right field was shrunk from 358 feet to 334 feet. And center field, which was an incredible 468 feet. Oh, good luck with that one. <laughs> That's Polo Grounds territory there. It was shrunk down to where it remains today at 420. A short 420. Um, so let's now get to 1940. The bullpens, as we know it, are now installed. Before that, they were actually down the uh, down the lines in foul territory, but they were moved into right field, thusly again shortening uh, right field. And these were dubbed uh, the bullpens were dubbed Williamsburg for Ted Williams, who was a rookie at that time, and they were trying to make it easier for him to hit home runs out there to right field. Oh, I see. So let's talk about the Green Monster. So everybody knows what the Green Monster is. My mom knows what the Green Monster is. It's a 37-foot wall, actually 37 feet 2 inches to be exact, in left field that makes her a real tempting target for right-handed batters. It is only 310 feet away from home plate. Originally, the wall was covered in ads, but in 1947, the wall was painted blue originally. I did not know that. Huh. It was painted blue, but the owner's wife disliked it, so it was painted green. And that became the Fenway green, to be specific, which is a trademarked color. So don't try and use it. Okay. The, uh, the wall is 231 feet long, and all but three feet of it is in fair territory. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Just that little sliver down the very left field line is in foul territory. Uh, Fenway, in fact, has the smallest amount of foul territory in the major leagues, and it continues to shrink as they continue every season to add more seats, fitting them, you know, in wherever they possibly can. Uh, more recently, of course, seats were added on top of the green monster, even so, <laughs> they're everywhere. I've actually sat. I didn't. I didn't sit, but I went up. Uh, I went up to the top of the green monster and stayed up there for a couple innings one time. Very, very cool view. I'll bet. Um, throughout its history, ownership has tried to have Fenway replaced many times. There have been several campaigns saying it was no longer structurally sound, they need to move, blah, 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 blah. You know, owner speak. Basically, they just wanted to get to a new stadium that they could, you know, have a new stadium, newer amenities, you know, be able to build costly luxury suites, uh, more concessions, all this kind of stuff that will ultimately get them more money. Well, in 2002, the current ownership group, which is headed by John Henry, who I'm going to give a shout out to because I'm a Liverpool fan and he owns Liverpool. Way to go. 
He commissioned a new study, which found that the ballpark was sound and ready to go, and there was no reason to ever possibly think about leaving. So from there, more improvements were made. They continue to be made each year, as I said, to keep the ballpark safe as well as updated. Fenway, in fact, is now listed on the Register of National Historical Places, which I believe means that even if the Red Sox were to leave, that the ballpark would still remain standing. It is still listed as one of the top drawing tourist attractions in the city, and tours are given throughout the day each day. If you go, I would say to do this, take a tour, take a couple of tours, because you'll get a different story every time. <laughs> and if you listen to this show, you like stories. So you do. a great idea. Well, I, I, I mean, just having worked in Fenway, I would be in the press room often, and tours would be coming through before. On, on game days and I would hear the same start of each story, but every tour guide had a different ending to the story. So that's great. That's like uh, you know, it's like a choose your own adventure. It really, it really is. Um, so the facade that you see there today is still the original. It's been touched up and cleaned many times, but it is the original, believe it or not. And most of the original structure is still in place as well. The uh, blue wooden seats, as I said, are there from the 34 update. The size of the clubhouses are legendary for how cramped they are. Uh, I remember I, I saw a quote from Ted Williams that he said he loved the size because it really helped the team come together because you're not in this big spacious clubhouse where everybody can kind of do their own thing. You know, in ballparks now, they're, they're huge. There's a bunch of different rooms. There's sofas. There's Xboxes. Everybody's got huge lockers not the case in Fenway. And it really, he said, helped his, you know, his teams gel together because they were, they were confined, essentially, in these, in these small clubhouses. Uh, Fenway, I believe, is the only park that has a different seating capacity for day games versus night games. I'm not sure if Wrigley is like this or not, but for day games, they put up an extended hitter's eye over a section of seats in center field, so they tarp it off. Hmm. But for night games, they open that up and people can, can sit there. Huh. So the original capacity for Fenway was listed at 24,000. Today, it is at 37,731. So over all those years, bit by bit, they were able to add a few thousand seats. 13,731 so far. That's impressive. So beyond just being old, Fenway has a lot of landmarks that a lot of baseball fans know about within it. So I, I just these are just things that you don't see in other parks just because of the age. And I thought these were all really interesting. Okay. So uh, first, I mentioned Ted Williams earlier, obviously one of the greatest Red Sox, as well as just one of the greatest all-time players. He is commemorated in many forms around Fenway, including uh, his numbers retired. Uh, there's a statue out in front of the right field entrance. He's also remembered by a single red seat among the sea of blue seats in right field. Section 42, row 37, seat 21. This is where Ted Williams in 1946, in the second game of a double header, hit a mammoth blast off of Fred Hutchinson. Uh, it hit this seat, supposedly. This seat is 502 feet away. Wow. Now, it wasn't a seat at the time. It was a bench. And supposedly, there was... I, there are a bunch of stories about this. I, nobody knows the truth. Uh, supposedly, there was a guy sitting there with a straw hat on, as one would wear to a game at this era. And 
there's conflicting reports as to whether he was a Yankee fan or a Red Sox fan, but it supposedly hit him in the head and put a hole in his hat. The Red Sox, uh, once they put seats in, that seat is painted red where this ball supposedly landed. That's that's amazing. It's also kind of funny that uh, everybody seems to be more concerned with the hat than the what it might have, you know, caused some is- issues with the guy's head. Uh, but, yeah, well, hey. he he said he he said he saw it coming, but he lost it in the sun, and the next thing he knew, it hit him in the head, and at that point, he wasn't thinking about the ball. He was a little bit dizzy. <laughs> Gotcha. But now, this opened up a can of worms for me because just a couple of days ago, uh, going around Twitter, there was an article about Babe home, uh, Babe Ruth. He hit a, his longest supposed home run, which was measured at 584 feet. People contest it. There's a bunch of stories and, and recreations. And so I brought up this because I, I happened to be researching Fenway, and I got a whole bunch of people responding to me. That led me to to finding a YouTube clip of David Ortiz saying, with as much respect as he possibly could, he was really treading lightly, but he essentially said, I can't even hit it there in batting practice. There is no way anybody could hit a ball. This led me down a, a very interesting path of the history of this home run and whether it actually happened or not. And I spoke to some really interesting people, some very, very smart people. And I think I'm going to just do a, a an episode in the very near future about some very famous home runs and kind of get behind the myths of some home runs. I also spoke to a longtime Fenway employee, and I just brought this up. And their first reaction, I, I speaking to him on the phone, his first reaction was to chuckle. <laughs> and that told me right away, you know, what people at Fenway actually think as to whether or not Ted Williams actually hit a 502 foot home run. Interesting. But it's a great story. It's it's great if you can go there on a game to go and sit and just see how far away from home plate that seat is. Very cool. One of the other unique features of Fenway is Pesky's pole in right field. So I already mentioned how short left field is with the green monster, but that's not even close to being the short assistance. You have to hit a ball to hit a home run in Fenway Park. Straight down the right field line, it's 302 feet. That is it. Wow. (laughs) So, of course, right field wasn't always such a short porch. Before 1940, it was the more standard 325 feet. But the field was reconfigured that season, as I mentioned, to move the bullpens to help Ted Williams hit more home runs. Well, Johnny Pesky was the team's shortstop, and I think it's fair to describe him as a light hitter. Pesky had only 17 home runs in his 10-year career. Six of those, though, did come at Fenway, uh, mostly due to the hitter-friendly corner there in right field. Now, I again read a lot of differing uh, history retrospectives about Johnny Pesky. And to be honest, I could only find one confirmed instance of him hitting what is now Pesky's pole. So it might be another one of those legends that has kind of grown over time. Yeah, it sounds like it. So coincidentally, the left field pole also has a name. Can you can you guess what the left field pole is named? Um, Steve? <laughs> Steve. Very close. Um, so it is actually called the Fisk pole. 
I'm, I'm guessing once I say that, a lot of people will will understand why. Yeah, I that po- immediately pictured and, Carlton Fisk jumping down the line, going "Stay fair." Yep, yep. I mean, I'm going to cover that in one minute, but yep, that's that's Fisk poll. I got you. So uh, Pesky's poll has actually been replaced several times, and if you ever get a chance to go down and see it, it's still really cool because everybody that goes down there signs it. It's just covered in signatures. And um, I thought Pesky's poll, I, I, I thought something like Pesky's poll could never happen now because, as I mentioned, it's only 302 feet. I thought there had to be a certain distance, certain dimensions needed to be met in Major League Parks now. But that is not the case. Uh, I looked it up. There are recommended distances, but there is nothing on the book that says anything needs to be X number of feet away from home plate other than the pitcher's mound and the bases, which wow. I thought was was strange. I had no idea. Yeah. I I always thought it needed to be at least, I thought it was 315 was the minimum. But nope, you can make it whatever you want. Uh, so the final landmark I want to talk about is the manual scoreboard, which is located inside the Green Monster and left. It is small, cramped, dark, cold, and awesome. Uh, there are usually one or two guys in there that work each game. They update the line score of the actual game behind the scoreboard, and they have several slots that they can look out you know, through and, and, and peer through the spaces designed for the large panels to watch the game. They also communicate with outfielders out there, (laughs) both in between innings and during the game. (laughs) Uh, They do the same thing for the out-of-town scoreboard, except for the very last column. So if you're looking at the scoreboard from home plate, that very last column on the right, you'll you'll notice they they can't, the the area behind the the scoreboard does not reach there. So they have to actually go out there in between innings and they – they update it from the front as opposed from the back. Uh, inside the walls are covered with signatures. So it used to be reserved for players, and but now I think pretty much everybody signs the wall. Uh, the first time I went there, I was with the team employee, and they asked me if I wanted to go in, you know, into the scoreboard. I'm like, uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Went in there. I'm looking at all the signatures, and, and they said, do you want to sign it? And I was like, no, <laughs> like I was like, this is where like I, you know, they showed me, uh, they showed me Nomar's signature and some, some older signatures and I'm like, I can't sign it. I'm not a player. Did you do that whole, uh, I'm not worthy thing? No, but I was just, I was like, I was a little bit disappointed that they just let anybody sign. Yeah. It. Um, I think a lot of people remember Manny Ramirez. Oh yeah. Uh, one, one particular instance uh, when uh, Terry Francona came out to the mound during a game to talk to the pitcher. And, you know, when, when a manager comes out to talk to a pitcher, it's generally to make a change, right? So Manny goes into the scoreboard as he, you know, did a lot of the time. The guy in there had been there for 25 years. And so he opens the door and Manny comes in and sitting down talking. And, you know, Terry then on the mound turns around and goes back to the dugout, doesn't make a change. So they're getting ready to start the game and then realize they don't have a left fielder. <laughs> so the crowd's murmuring and Manny looks out and according to the scoreboard uh, guy, they both let loose with expletives and Manny sheepishly comes out of the scoreboard. There's video of him you know, coming out of the scoreboard. Oh, I, I recall yeah. this. Yeah, so th- I thought that was interesting. Uh, another note, there are no bathrooms back there. Oh, wow. 
as uh, as you can expect, being that old, there's been quite a few World Series that have been played at Fenway. 1912, 1914, 1918, 1946, 67, 75, 86, 2004, 2007, 2013, and finally last year, 2018. The 1914 series that I mentioned, however, was not the Red Sox. This is very interesting. The Boston Braves of the National League played their entire season at Fenway that year while they had a new park being built, and they swept the Philadelphia Athletics in 1914 in Fenway. Uh, The Sox also made it to the World Series in 1915 and 16. But if you'll notice, I did not I did not list those years in the years the World Series was played at Fenway. That's because the Red Sox moved their World Series game to that new Braves stadium that had been built because it held more fans. Ah, so they were kind of trading off stadiums. Just trying to get butts in the seats. That's, a, that's what matters. Yep. Uh, so game six of the 1975 World Series, we mentioned this briefly earlier. One of those games that even non-baseball fans, I'm sure, have seen you know, highlights of at least once. That's the iconic at-bat of Carlton Fisk waving a home run fair, and you get that great shot from a camera in the green monster. And just that's one of those iconic moments, and, and thusly why it's been called the Fisk Bowl. Uh, there have been two single-game playoffs at Fenway, 1948 against the Indians, and of course the 1978 game against the Yankees again, where Bucky Blank and Dent set the <laughs> Sox faithful home in a foul mood. Yes. There's been uh, three All-Star games at Fenway, 1946, 1961, and 1999. Now, I remember that 99 one, obviously, not the other ones. Uh, but that was the one where the All-Century team was named and Ted Williams was brought out as the as the last member of the team to a huge ovation. And all the players just uh, spontaneously surrounded him uh, on the pitcher's mound. And Tony Gwynn, who, who he was good friends with, was right there by the side and I get chills, like right now I'm getting chills thinking about that every time. That was one of the greatest, uh, greatest all-star moments anywhere, let alone Fenway. No doubt. So Fenway has hosted more than 8,500 big league games. That's more than any other park. Wrigley Field is in second place, having hosted 8,300. They opened up in 1914. And in third place, because it hosted both Cardinals and Browns games, is Sportsman's Park and that was later renamed Bush Stadium, which was from 1909 to 1965, which hosted 7,074 games. So I, I guess that means there's been three Bush Stadiums because Sportsman's Park was then named Bush Stadium. Then they had the cookie cutter Bush Stadium, and now they've got the new Bush Stadium. Wow, three Bush Stadiums. Who knew? So a lot of Bush Stadiums. Yeah. Um, couple of two other things here as, as we wrap up Fenway Park. Non-baseball events. They, Fenway hosts a ton of baseball events beyond the major leagues. High school, they played Negro League games there. The Women's Professional League had games there. The Cape Cod League has games there. Well, outside of baseball, the Patriots have actually played 39 games at Fenway Park. Uh, there's been high school and college bowl games as well as regular season college games played there. There's been several Gaelic football games as well as soccer hosted there. Uh, 
Liverpool is played there, as I mentioned, because the owner also owns Liverpool. It's been boxing, wrestling matches, a couple of basketball games, several lacrosse matches, and a couple of hurling matches as well. The uh, the NHL has also staged a couple of games there. They hosted the Winter Classic there uh, a couple of years ago, and every other year they put some ice on the outfield and will host hockey games throughout the winter. That's interesting. As as odd shaped as the uh, the park is, it's still very utilitarian. Is that a word? Yes, it okay, is. It's, it's perfect. It's perfect. It fits perfect. Um, one last thing I want to bring up about Fenway. Uh, until the year 1932, Sunday games were banned. Uh, in 1928, Massachusetts voters decided to finally allow sports on the Lord's Day between 2 p.m. and 6 p.m., but it was still illegal to play professional games on Sunday within a thousand feet of the church, which Fenway is. So as a result, the Red Sox finally played their first Boston Sunday home game ever in 1929 at Braves Field because there was no church around there. And a lot of other teams that have come and gone through Boston had to play at Braves Field. Eventually, the church rule was lifted, so the Red Sox got to play a home game at Fenway for the first time in 1932. The Yankees, though, beat the hell out of them, get it, on that day by the score of 13-2. to very interesting. And that, my friends, is, I mean, and this is just a brief history of Fenway. Uh, it is a very interesting stadium. A lot of things have happened there and uh, a lot of fun baseball things to talk about from Fenway Park. Uh, the, the history runs so deep there, it has to be uh, filled with great stories. Yeah, it is. It's a great place, great place to visit, whether you root for the Red Sox or not. Everybody should go there once. Agreed. So... Uh, this is the part of the podcast where we like to do two things. One, play a very catchy and professionally made theme song. And number two, we like to talk about what is actually second best. Your second best. Better than most of the rest. Better than number one. Number one is better than anyone. This is the part of the podcast where Mark and I like to come up with a topic and then see what both of us think the second best answer is to the question. Because everybody can do, you know, what's the best answer. So we're going to go for the second best. Mark, I've got a topic for you this week. Are you are you ready for this one? All right, hit me. We uh, we talked briefly about some all star game memories during uh, Fenway Park. What is your second best all star memory? So I'm going to let you capitulate about that. Okay. You don't have to go in the corner. You don't have to turn your back. Do your work in front of me. That's fine. Okay. All right. I am going to go ahead and, and give you my, I'll, I'll tell you what my first best memory is of the All-Star game, but then I'm going to tell you what my second best memory is. Now, I have been waffling on this. Um, really, I, I have two, two All-Star game memories 
that I think of first and I think would have to be first and second. And I think just as we were discussing it during the Fenway portion, I am going to make a last minute change and I'm going to put that Ted Williams all-star moment in 1999 as my, as my favorite all-star memory. Just again, I get chills thinking about it right now. So him being wheeled out to, uh, and I don't want to say wheeled out, but he was, he was not doing well at that point. He was in a golf cart out to the pitcher's mound and everybody coming and surrounding him. I'm going to list that as my favorite all-star game memory. And I, I have been to, I think, four all-star games now, but n- none of them have impacted me as much as these two. My second best all-star game memory comes from 1989. Game was held in the Big A in Los Angeles, California. But bottom of the first inning, Bo Jackson leads off for the American League and hits a bomb to straightaway center field. It was it was a shot. I don't I don't know why this resonates so much with me. I remember uh, Wade Boggs hits a home run as the second batter as well. But the the home run from Bo Jackson was something that just sticks in my memory forever. I remember former President Ronald Reagan was in the booth uh, doing TV with uh, with what, whoever was probably NBC at the time uh, when the when the home run was hit. But for some reason, Bo Jackson hitting that home run is my second best all-star game memory that's what about you that's a good one I, that was i recall that it was a shot and it was a pretty exciting moment you know where where you got this guy who's a two-sport athlete proving to everyone that he belongs there i think it was atley hammocker does that sound right i know it was a giant atley if i had a hammocker yes but let's see I, I i'm watching the video right now the grainy video uh, Rick Russell, my bad. Rick oh, Russell. Sure. All right. So, what uh, what is your what's your what's your best All Star Game memory, and then your second best? Okay. Well, I've been fortunate enough to go to <clears throat> a handful of All Star Games, and the earliest one was actually in 1979, and it was in Seattle. I still have my ticket stub, and uh, the Kingdome at that point. The Kingdome, and I, eventually, I had my ticket stub signed by Nolan Ryan. It was beat up and bent. Oh wow! And I think. I think he thought, man, this guy's not going to sell this. This is for personal use because it's not going to be worth anything. But uh, it was the first time I saw Nolan Ryan pitch. And he threw a couple innings and he was amazing. And I I just was shocked at how hard he threw the ball. And so that's really where I became a Nolan Ryan fan. And it kind of changed my outlook for the future of baseball. It's how he became an Astros fan. It's how I uh, started collecting cards, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that was my favorite all-star moment. Now, and I got to spend it with my dad, too, so that makes it an even better memory. Cool. Okay. That's a, that is a worthy best all-star game moment. There you go. Now, my second favorite would be 2001 all-star game in Seattle. And this is, this is uh, Cal Ripken Jr.'s last all-star game. And he's uh, at this point playing third and Alex Rodriguez trades with him so he can go play shortstop and, you know, at his, his position that he played the majority of his career. And uh, later on, he came up to bat to thunderous applause and he hit one over the left field fence into the visitor's bullpen. And the place, just went, that. place went ballistic. 
And uh, there's still a plaque out there saying, hey, this is where Ripken hit his last all-star home run. It was uh, it was cool because everybody was watching Cal Ripken that year because the record was going to be broken and all kinds of you know crazy stuff that they were talking about could happen and may happen. And to watch him just in a very clutch situation – Hit a home run, you know, master of of excitement, you know, it, very timely, and uh, everybody enjoyed it so much. It's a great moment. I really liked it, and uh, I'll never forget it. That is a likewise worthy second best All Star Game moment. <laughs> Glad to know it. Well, I think that uh, that wraps it up. We've we've had a pretty full uh, full show today talking about Rube. And uh, and Fenway, it's been very informative, very fun. We hope you enjoyed it. As usual. So uh, we'd like to once again implore everybody listening uh, a couple of things that could really help us out. One, if you would love to jump on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us and leave us a nice review, we would sure appreciate that. That's That's what helps other people find us, and we would appreciate that. Also, tell some friends. Say, hey... There are two these these two idiots that talk about baseball, but they're sometimes uh, entertaining. Uh, go ahead and, and and let people know about us. Likewise, uh, please follow us on social media. Uh, we are constantly posting uh, things we talk about, as well as just things that we find humorous or uh, extremely entertaining about the game of baseball. You can do that at Two Strike Noise. That's at T W O Strike Noise on both Twitter and Instagram. You can also uh, message us through either of those uh, social media platforms. We will probably even respond directly to you, and that would really make our day if somebody said, hey, what's up? So follow us. Say hey. Yeah, we'll, Drop us a line. we'll most likely respond. We might even get our, uh, our audio engineer. Moogie will probably respond immediately, so please... Uh, give us a, a follow on both those platforms. Tell your friends, family, neighbors. You know, I'm not even opposed to just going up to a random stranger on the street and telling them. Give it a shot. Ma- might make a new friend. That's right. So that will do it for this week's episode. Mark, uh, are you free to do another episode next week? I will be available in between my uh, baseball assignments. I should have some time to do an episode. Absolutely. Great. Well, then uh, we will be back here. We hope you will be, too. Thank you for joining us. And that will do it for another episode of Two Strike Noise. Thank you all. God bless you. Have a great night. Bye.